0: What happens when researchers succeed in building the first general artificial intelligence? Tonight, Adrian and I, Kasper, will not give you the answer to this question. but We will try to give you some arguments, some considerations um, that show what the future might hold um, regarding artificial intelligence. Um, as I said, my name is Kasper. I studied computer science at ETH Zurich. Um, I've been looking into this topic for two years now.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, my name is Adrian Hunter. I've studied physics at ETH Zurich and then I'm doing a PhD in theoretical physics at the University of Basel. And you will meet me again later on.
0: Yeah, so when it comes to the outline, so first I will define a few important terms. Um, I will introduce the topic. Um, Kind of the theoretic phenomena called technological singularity. Adrian will continue um, with some considerations where this might lead us to, some outcomes, and also where we are today, and potential paths towards such a superintelligence. And then I will conclude with some strategic considerations: what needs to be done facing um, such an outlook. So, what are we talking about? Um, first of all, it's always useful to have a definition. So, for the sake of um, this presentation, I define, artificial, uh, I define intelligence as a measure um, for an agent's ability to achieve its goal in a wide range of unknown environments. So, this is a, a totally technical definition. It might not capture everything that you're familiar with um, when it comes to term intelligence. Um, if you're confused about these term intelligence um, during this presentation, just replace it with optimization power. it's just about kind of fulfilling your goal in whatever environment you happen to be in. So all that is needed um, to have such an intelligence is an epistemology. So you need to have a learning mechanism to learn a model about the world, about the environment um, you act in. Secondly, You need to have an utility function to rate between different world states. So you need to have a way um, for your decisions, um, have a criteria, how you decide. And this is the last ingredient, so you need to have a decision theory, how you're going to decide with the model of the world. So you have a model what your interactions will lead you to, and then you decide according to your utility function which actions you're going to take. So um, this all sounds very simple, in a certain sense it is, but only if you're, as an agent, kind of live outside of of this environment. So when you become part of the environment, there are many open problems um, and we will not go into them tonight. A first very important um, remark is we're talking about intelligence tonight, we're not talking about consciousness. So this is a totally um, separate question. So consciousness is not required for an agent to reshape the world according to its utility function. But it's still interesting. So um, consciousness is either reducible, so it can be broken up into other parts. It might be emergent emergent phenomena of of an intelligent agent, or it might be fundamental. And kind of independent of that, it might also be a universal property of this universe. In the same um, kind of topic also falls machine sentience. So does it feel like anything to be such a machine, such an intelligent machine? Um, This is an open question, and it's of immense importance. So there are two main aspects of this question. So can simulated entities be conscious? And the second, um, which is kind of obviously true, is if the first is true, is true. Um, Can machines also be moral patients? So do we need to take care of these machines? Do they deserve uh, moral consideration? And if if consciousness can be simulated, um, this might kind of change our metaphysical outlook um, on this universe. So we might, in principle, live in a computer simulation. So um, before entering the actual arguments, let's zoom out a little bit. Um, Oxford professor Nick Bostrom Coins the term "crucial consideration." So, a crucial consideration is an idea, and it entails a major change um, regarding your priorities, regarding your actions. And the, why are crucial considerations so important? So, if you're heading the wrong way, um, yeah, the last thing you want to have is progress. So, <clears throat> um, I claim um, that we cover quite a few potential crucial considerations tonight. And I will start now with the first one. <clears throat> so, when you look on the history of the universe, um, it is still presumably, or there was presumably something like a Big Bang. And now, 14 billion years later, um, we're kind of four billion years into this um, life period, when life um, first emerged four billion years ago. Um, so, you have the time, on the x-axis, and you have some kind of general um, notion of maturity of life on the y-axis. So, currently, we are here, and if you look back on the past decades, um, centuries, millennia, um, a lot of things have changed quite dramatically. Um, so, the argument is we're not living in a stable time. So, it's not the same as it, as it always was, and, and that's for, therefore, it would likely not to stay the same. Um, as we currently are now, but we live now um, kind of in really big historical terms, um, kind of in an unstable time. So it's it's very unlikely that we will stay in this situation forever. Now, how can you um, kind of look far into the future? So the argument is that there are certain states um, that kind of act as an attractor. So one example is um, if, if life um, goes extinct. It it kind of um, tends to stay extinct. So once you're down here, um, it's done. So this is an attractor state. You remain extinct. And the other kind of direction would be technological maturity, um, kind of having a system that is um, able to self-sustain. So um, I have a term there um, called singleton. So what might um, such technological maturity look like? So first, definition of this term singleton, which was also coined by um, Professor Nick Bostrom. So a singleton is a world order with a single decision-making agency at its highest level. And it's very crucial that the definition itself leaves, leaves it open what this single decision agency might be. So it might be anything from just kind of um, a society with strong pro-social punishment, it might be kind of a one-party totalitarian regime, or it might be something like a superintelligent um, agent, as we're going to talk tonight. And so um, it's also kind of the second assumption there is that such a singleton is smart enough to avoid internal and external threats to its persistence. So once you are in a singleton, you stay there. So that's just kind of the definition. Now, what are the advantages? So there are two of them, or kind of two main advantages. So first of all, all the cooperation problems are solved. Um, And one cooperation problems are arms races, and also kind of um, the Darwinian nature um, of of the universe we live in, so um, that the strong survival of the fittest might no longer be true which might be very well a good thing. Um, there are also some disadvantages. So you put all the eggs into one basket. So if kind of the singleton goes bad, um, you, it could result in the dystopian world and you would have a durable lock-in. <coughs> and then there's this general question which is called the singleton hypothesis. So on the question there is, is this our ultimate fate? So um, if you look back, um, we had um, increasingly an organization on higher and higher levels. So from tribes to national states to um, international and supranational organizations. And this is just kind of the natural um, continuation of past trends. So the second part of this presentation is about this term, which some of you might have heard of, called Singularity. So, um, this whole presentation is is an abbreviation of a longer one. So, we've just picked the main main aspects and and tried to, to bring the argument across. So, first observation is that the more knowledge you have, the more powerful the technologies are that you can build, and the more powerful your technologies are, the more knowledge you can acquire. So what does it mean? It means that progress feeds on itself, and if you look on the history of, of technology, um, again, it's kind of a very um, general um, notion here. Technology, um, you could kind of insert um, whatever, um, particularly technology, like so. Most of them have some exponential growth in the past, and when it comes to um, computer speed, this is known as Moore's law, but it's way, way, way broader. Um, This law than just computer power and speed. So, um, what especially Ray Kurzweil argument is that um, if it's true since the the dawn of life, it might also hold true for the next hundred years. So, what does it mean if if this law, this exponential growth in technology, is true for the twenty-first century? So, the problem is that our intuition is totally linear and what it mean or what the world might look like at the end of the century. So if you stand here in the year 2000, imagine you would have steady progress. Now imagine where we would be in 20,000 years if this progress continues at a linear rate. And now, due to exponential growth, the argument is we might be there at the end of the century. So don't kind of um, limit your imagination um, too much. So um, as you know, knowledge and technology is extremely powerful, but so far it, it was mainly applied to kind of external um, objects, external um, things. But what if, if, if there is an agent that applies knowledge and technology to itself? So such an agent could bootstrap and amplify its own intelligence. And this is the argument, um, which is known as intelligence explosion. Um, so if an agent is able to improve its own intelligence um, and if not with such a kind of proportionality thesis, if this holds true for more than just a few um, iterations, um, it might kind of grow extremely fast. Now, as I said, so it's a theoretical argument, so we don't know um, how intelligence scales, so it might very well be bounded, yeah, but it, it's an open question as well. So, but imagine kind of if it's not bounded, um, and if you have such an intelligence explosion, um, what we might end with is what is known as technological singularity. So as I said, it's theoretical, in the sense it hasn't been observed, but there are arguments, kind of the arguments I gave and, and more advanced versions of them and a few people have been pretty influential in kind of coining this term, similarity, and have their own notion attached to it. So the first one, which we shortly covered, is Ray Kurzweil's notion of accelerating change. So kind of all technologies, also nanotechnology, biotechnology, it's just going faster and faster and faster, and when kind of this um, grow becomes almost vertical, that's where kind of um, singularity takes place. Another notion, which you've also seen is this intelligence explosion, which goes back to um, Professor H. A. Goode. And the third one by computer science professor and and science fiction author, Werner Winsch, is that if you have agents that are smarter than you are, you're no longer able to predict the future. And so in that sense, the singularity at that moment in time an event horizon beyond which we may not look now. <clears throat> so, this was the introduction. Now, Adrian um, will cover what is my latest Thank you, Casper.
1: So, at the beginning of the talk, Casper has defined um, what we mean by intelligence. So, let me now introduce the term superintelligence. What do we mean by superintelligence? We mean we call an agent superintelligent if it surpasses human at virtually all um, cognitive tasks and virtually all areas of interest um, that are kind of cognitive in nature. And it's very important here to realize that there's no reason to assume that our human, our biological brains, are are um, in some way close to the physical limitations there are on intelligence. So usually if we think about... uh, the range of intelligence there is in the universe, we kind of imagine some fool on the one end of the scale and then Einstein on the other end of the scale. But if you take a step back and look at it a bit in a broader picture, um, yeah, it's important to realize that these two points are basically indistinguishable points, which are which correspond to almost the same level of intelligence, and there is a lot of space below this human intelligence level and there is no reason to think that there is not a lot of space above the human level of intelligence. And if you take this step out, then the whole human scale kind of almost vanishes to a point. Um, So what are possible paths that could potentially lead us to such a superintelligence? The most promising route probably is artificial intelligence. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, we can distinguish between neuromorphic intelligence. So these are methods of artificial intelligence which are inspired by biology, which are inspired by looking at how nature um, achieves intelligence. And then there are synthetic methods which have no kind of biological um, um, motivation. And um, so it kind of the extreme of biology-inspired intelligence would be whole brain evolution, whole brain emulation, which, which means that you just scan a whole biological brain in very high detail with very high sim- resolution and just simula- simulate this on a computer. So if you like, this is kind of a, um, a brute force path towards um, superintelligence because it does not require you to understand what the brain actually does so all it re- requires is that you're able to scan a brain at a very high resolution and a very high level of accuracy so if you've heard for example about the Blue Brain project at EPFL, that's what they do and basically the question whether a, an artificial path or vo- whole brain em- emulation will come first kind of depends on how fast our understanding of intelligent progresses so as I said, this path does not require any understanding of how intelligence works it's kind of a purely um, pure, pure, pure engineering challenge And then there are other possible ways that one can think about that can somehow increase intelligence but will prob- that will probably not lead us to full Super intelligence in a strong sense. So the first of these is just biological brains as we know them that could potentially be enhanced in some way, but probably will not lead us as far as these ways will lead us. So what I should what I should have said before is that whole brain emulation, um, of course, gives you the possibility that once you've scanned a brain um, to computer hardware, you can run it at a much higher speed. Than, um, than is possible in nature, so while in some sense this may not be an actual increase of intelligence, just the fact that you can multiply then the brain and run it at, at very high speed may in effect um, lead to similar outcomes than if you were able to actually increase the intelligence of a being. Yeah, then one can potentially imagine um, interfaces between biological and computer brains and finally. In some sense, one can also um, understand organizations or states as intelligent in some sense, but neither of these is likely to reach um, full-scale superintelligence. But since these tasks are all in some way social problems, so they're all teams working on them and societies funding these projects, um, better organizations, better functioning states um, are certainly helpful in achieving one of these ways. So, what are some advantages that computers and hence artificial intelligences have over biological brains? So, the first point is size. So, brains are basically limited to the size of your school, and due to the limited size of the birth channel, our brains are unlikely to become much larger. Um, and by contrast, there's no way, there's no obvious limit to the size a computer could potentially have. Um, computers can run at much higher speed, so if you look at these numbers here, um, biological neurons fire 200 times per second, and um, modern micro microprocessors can fire 4 billion times a second. Um, then also the speed of signals, so in the human brains that's under 20 meters per second, which is relatively slow. Whereas in a computer, the only limit is the speed of light. And then um, you can have very reliable memory. Humans tend to have problem memorizing things, as you all know, um, whereas hard, um, hard disks are very reliable and have enormous capacities. Then also there's the software aspect. So basically humans, Every human needs to learn for the first two decades of their life everything from the parents until they are kind of fully, um, until they function in a full way. And by contrast, once a program has learned something, has achieved some, some skills, you can just copy and paste it and um, extend it with further modules and so on. So all these biological limitations are absent on the artificial intelligence level. Then we also know from cognitive science that humans suffer from a huge number of cognitive biases that sometimes prevent us from, ach- prevent us from achieving our goals. And um, there's no reason why this should be present for artificial intelligences. Another aspect here is also motivation. Humans tend to lose interest in boring tasks after a few hours. And again, there's no reason why this should be the case artificial intelligences. Now all of these advantages can give um, an artificial intelligence a wide range of advantages. So one of these is intelligence amplification that Casper talked already about. So an artificial intelligence would have the possibility to further increase its own intelligence and um, So, given an initial ability to improve its own um, intelligence, there's no obvious limitation to this self-improving process. Um, And it could also be much better than humans at strategizing, um, hacking, social manipulation, economic productivity, and technological research. Okay, so now when it comes to thinking about what such a superintelligence would be, Um, there is a very important thesis that has been developed um, which is called the Autogonality Thesis and what it says is that um, intelligence as defined at the beginning of this talk and final goals are orthogonal in some sense so basically almost any level of intelligence and almost any goals you could potentially have are compatible so there's no reason to expect that a sufficiently high level of intelligence will necessarily imply um, a certain set of goals. So if you like, you can read this orthogonality thesis as kind of a warning, so do not rely on an artificial intelligence being somehow benevolent just because it's intelligent. Um, It can be intelligent and still have goals that um, can be very um, destructive for, for what we value. Um, and another important point here is that there are some some goals you can have that are kind of that are kind of explicitly bad, others that we um, could call explicitly good, but just the, almost all goals that you could possibly implement in uh, intelligence are kind of neither good nor bad according to human standards, but just kind of um, senseless. So here an example would be an ancient that tries to maximize the number of paper clips. So, um, if you think, if you, again, if you take a step back and look at all goals that one could possibly pursue, the, the subset of those goals which are really explicitly bad or explicitly good is just a very small subset and the vast majority of possible goals is in itself neither good nor bad, but still has implications for what we as humans um, tend to value. And yeah, because there are just much more goals that are neither good nor bad, the default outcome, if we don't make sure that there are good goals implemented, the default outcome will probably not be a bad goal, but just one that pursues something which we would call pointless. Now, it seems that Since I've argued that there's such a vast space of possible goals that you could possibly pursue, there's no way of knowing what a superintelligence would possibly do. But in fact, um, we can possibly still um, make some educated guesses about what a superintelligence will do, because for almost any goal a superintelligence could have, there are certain sub-goals which would be instrumentally useful towards achieving almost any goal. So the most obvious of these is self-preservation. Any agent pursuing any kind of goal will want to make sure that it continues to exist because otherwise it will not be able to pursue its goal any further unless its goal somehow involves its own destruction. And then um, in a similar point, an agent will try to preserve its own goal structure. So even if it... um, continues to exist physically if its goals are modified um, at some later time that's still harmful for the goals that it has at some earlier time so it will will tend to um, ensure that its goal structure is preserved finally almost any goals that you could possibly pursue um, are better pursued if you have more resources at your hand so most agents will tend to um, accumulate resources and um, amplify their own intelligence, which also helps you achieve almost any goal you can have. So, what can we conclude from this slide and the previous slide? So, because almost for, for, for almost all goals you could have, you want to get control of resources, and therefore, for almost all goals a superintelligence could have, it will just take to get control of all the resources in its neighborhood, so including everything that is on Earth. So, kind of the bottom line of this slide and the previous slide is that um, you should not trust on there being automatically a good good outcome. We will only get a good outcome if we actively take efforts to make sure that there is a good outcome. So one conclusion from this is that um, our first superhuman intelligence better be a safe one and a good one, because we may only get one shot. And now if you look at humanity's history, we see that historically humans are kind of good at getting things right after failing a thousand of times. Um, And we humans historically were terrible at getting things right At the very first trial, Um, humans are able to learn, are able to make progress, but often only after catastrophes have occurred. And um, so if you combine this with this point here, the conclusion seems to be that we better avoid this historic pattern. Um, So now, how can such an evolution towards superintelligence, how can this... How will this look like? Now there are two different questions that one can ask. One is how long is the time from now until the beginning of the takeoff? And then a second independent question is um, what's the duration of the takeoff? And the date, the takeoff is here defined as the time from um, the time when the self-improvement process of an intelligence starts until it reaches a level which is significantly significantly higher than the human intelligence level. And these two questions of the time until takeoff and the duration of the takeoff are kind of independent of each other. Now, the relevance of the first question of the time to the takeoff is kind of obvious. Um, The relevance of the second question may be a bit less obvious. So what's the relevance of the duration of the takeoff? Um, so, if the takeoff is very fast, such as um, a week or a few weeks, um, there's likely that there will just be one agent that controls the whole neighborhood. Um, so, which can then lead to a singleton, a term which Casper has introduced. By contrast, if the takeoff is sufficiently slow, then there may be time for different agents with different goals. To emerge, which are all kind of similarly powerful, and which then compete and trade with each other. And then this interplay between these, te- between these different agents will, um, will tend to dominate what happens in the future. Okay, so now this was all kind of theoretical and a bit far-fetched, so the next chapter will talk about them. Um, where are we now? What can we already see? So, if you look again at um, biological brains and um, computers, um, the the hardware of brains is highly parallel. So, in your brain, there are always a lot of things happening in parallel and you're conscious of only a few of all of these processes that are happening in parallel, Um, but it appears to you that there's kind of a sequential process of events in your consciousness. So, if you like um, the your consciousness is kind of a a sequential user interface on top of a parallel hardware and then for cu- for computers it's exactly the opposite or at least has been until quite recently so traditional CPUs have only been able to do one process after the other and but still you can several you can run several programs in parallel um So kind of your computer provides a parallel user interface on top of a sequential hardware, which is exactly the opposite of the brain. And uh, one one implication of this is what is difficult and easy for biological brains and for computers. So um, pattern recognition is very easy for humans because we have very specialized modules for recognizing patterns. So it goes very effortlessly for us and by contrast um, just processing raw data is very difficult for us so just multiplying two five digit integers in our heads is more than we can do and again for computers it's kind of the opposite so while while every child can recognize a lot of different objects and distinguish them this is something that is very hard to get computers to do but by com- just processing raw data is something that can be done very easily by use of computers. But in fact, in the recent years, there's been a lot of um, progress on exactly this point on um, computer-based pattern recognitions. So one very recent event from one month ago, uh, there was an image recognition contest that has been held for several years now. or you just are given images and have to um, write a description to them. And now for the first time this year, um, teams from Google and from Microsoft achieved um, superhuman performance in this, cut, in, these tasks, in this task. And one reason for this is our progress is on the hardware level, so that now people rely no longer on CPUs, but on GPUs, which can be used in a highly parallel way. So here's a bit more about state-of-the-art. Uh, we have self-driving cars. Um, already in 1997, the then best, poker, uh, poker, then best chess player in the world was defeated by IBM's Deep Blue. And in 2011, IBM's Watson even defeated the two best players in the game, Jeopardy, which is a game where you um, are yeah, given an answer and then you have to find a question which has this answer as its answer. Um, So here's the traffic sign recognition contest and you probably cannot read it, but on the first place here is a team from Switzerland, There's in Lugano, there's the Swiss AI lab which is led by Jürgen Schmidhuber, was on first plan on the first place, so of course not the team itself, but uh, the artificial intelligence that they programmed and humans here were on the second place. Okay, now here you can see something again, something very recently um, from this this institute in Lugano. um, Several alumni of this institute have founded a company which is called DeepMind, which was acquired by Google like one or two years ago for about 400 million dollars. It's now in London, and um, here you can see something what their artificial intelligence can do. So you can, so they let it play um, a vari- variety of games. And um, what is very important is that they do not program into the intelligence how to play these games. All the program receives are the, the pixels of the, of the screen and the reward telling it how good it performed. So at the beginning it tends to make some random moves, it just presses buttons at random and it sees now this works, this didn't work, and then it progresses and progresses and in a lot of these games they reach a superhuman performance. So let's see how this works. Yeah, so this is after 100 episodes, Yeah, it makes some random moves and the ball often goes down Now, after 200 episodes, it has realized that it shouldn't let the ball go down. but it still makes mistakes. Yeah now after 400 episodes, it doesn't let the ball down anymore, but it does still not use the optimal strategy. So it is, um, it is very important here to, to understand and to appreciate the difference between what this deep mind agent does and which something like um, Deep Blue did, which defeated Kasparov in chess. So with Deep Blue, um, there were a lot of chess grandmasters and a lot of programmers that programmed all of their understanding of chess directly to the agent, and then kind of the combination of all of all of this knowledge that it was given and immense computing power then surface to defeat Kasparov here the agent is not given any knowledge at all so it does not know that there is a ball it does not know that the ball should not go down all it receives are the inputs of the pixels and um, its core so how well it performed and then it, it learns itself to um, to recognise that there is a ball and that there is this kind of thing that it can move um, that, the, that the ball tends to bounce on the wall and so on. It, all, it learns all of this itself just yeah like much like a, a child learns to discover the world. So it's really um, it's really this this um, project uh, um, in fact was published in Nature and it is widely seen as a very important step towards um, broad artificial intelligence. So yeah, so this deep mind that has defeated Kasparov in chess is kind of a prime example of an intelligence which, which has very high but very narrow intelligence. It can do exactly this one task. Now, this is, by contrast, a very broad intelligence. It can, in principle, learn anything. And it has learned to play... Um, thousands of, of games like these. Okay, so then this brings us to the question, how long before we reach AGI here, meaning Artificial General Intelligence, so which is defined as an intelligence which, yeah, which would reach human levels on really almost all intellectual tasks. Now, this question is very difficult to answer. There's absolutely no consensus among experts. So the only consensus there is is that um, we, cannot, we cannot give kind of narrow timelines, we can only give broadish estimates. Um, it depends on a lot of unknown factors. For example, um, will hardware or software eventually be the bottleneck? Um, will it be kind of a small team of genius programmers that do something in their basement? Or will it be a, a big government-sponsored Manhattan-like project? Are more speed bumps or accelerators ahead of us? So these are all very difficult questions with a lot of uncertainty. But having said that, um, the median estimate for a 50% probability of AGI is 2050, and for 90% probability is 2070. So the bottom line is that there's really a significant probability that it will happen within our lifetimes. Okay, so now here I have these terms speed bumps and accelerators. Um, What could these possibly be? Now there are some things that could slow down progress. One of them is that it could potentially be that the progress that we have seen in recent years is simply due to us picking a lot of high-hanging fruits and that all the problems that remain are just much more difficult than the ones that have been overcome in previous years. Then there's this Moore's law that Caster briefly talked about, which traditionally says that a lot of measures of computing power double every two years. And it may be that there's no reason to assume that this law continues to hold. And in fact, there are some people who say that one now sees um, an end of this Moore's law, that the doubling time is now no longer two years, but three years or so. Um... Then, of course, everything which would stop technological progress would also stop progress towards artificial intelligence, so societal collapse. And finally, it may just be that humanity decides that it may not be a good idea to create agents which are more intelligent than humans. Um, By contrast, there are also a lot of factors that could speed up progress towards artificial general intelligence. Um, so we have now much better hardware as we had in the past. So one factor here are these GPUs, which can, can do parallel processing in tradition to, in contrast to traditional CPUs. Um, we have now much better algorithms um, for programming general intelligence. So this, um, this DeepMind, for example, that I showed before Uses what, are called, what is called deep learning. So this is a heavily biology inspired approach, um, which um, consists of which uses an artificial neural network. So um, it has yeah, like in a biological brain, it consists of different layers of neurons, um, and it's called deep learning because there are a lot of, lot of layers of neurons behind each other, and then kind of the early layers. Um, of the network learn to recognize simple features such as in this game before um, that learn to recognize where the ball is and then the higher level the the layers which are deeper down learn to recognize higher level concepts such as it's a good idea to bring the ball behind this wall such that it bounces um, back and forth and finally we live in the age of big data so we just have a lot of data available, which is very crucial for training these artificial neural networks. So every time you use Google image search and then Google for cat playing piano and then click on an image, then you train Google's um, neural network. Um, You make it a bit better at recognizing images that show cats playing the piano. And finally, there are just a lot of incentives that um, make it likely that this progress will continue. So these are mostly economic in nature, but also um, of the military kind. Of course, nobody wants to fall back behind the competitors. So and with this I know over to
0: So if these arguments hold up, um, I hope we convince you that this prospect of having superintelligence during our lifetimes um, kind of is, is a little bit fearful. Um, so what can we do to avert kind of bad outcomes due to such superintelligence um, coming along the way? So um, kind of from an ethical perspective, if you look at different causes and you want to prioritise among them, there are three major criteria how you can do this. So first of all, you're interested in something that is of a large scope. So it should be an important issue. Um, So why would you care about an issue that doesn't matter anyway? Then the issue needs to be tractable. So um, what you do needs to affect the the outcome or what is done about this issue. I mean, an an issue could be very important and very large scale, but if there's nothing that can be done, um, yeah, so be it. And last... If you kind of look on your counterfactual kind factual impact, you want to have an issue that is not too crowded. So if there's already a million people working on an issue, kind of what the difference that you achieve will not be as high as if you're, for example, the 10th person that joins a very important cause. So the main message here is simple. So work on the matters that matter the most. And the argument is that AI is the key lever to the long future of kind of evolution um, as we know it, and the issue is urgent, it's arguably tractable, and it's totally uncredited so far, and yeah, the stakes, so what at stake is astronomical, so it's literally the future light cone um, of our existence. Now it's also important that we not only speak about kind of the negative um, effects of superintelligence, so if we manage this challenge well, so it might be very, very beneficial. So there's this concept of flow-through effects. So by going one level up, um, we could solve the difficulty of solving problem. And artificial intelligence is a candidate for simplifying um, the problem solving that we currently fail are failing at. So if you look at other issues, um, like extreme poverty, um, factory farming, climate change, um, artificial intelligence could help help us in solving all of them whereas each of the other one might even affect some of the others negatively and this is not as drastic in the alleviating kinds of problems we have there now what needs to be done so with kind of this metaphor of an intelligence explosion there's um, kind of this idea or project that just be first in building a friendly artificial intelligence before someone with just any general artificial intelligence so that we have a controlled detonation. Now the thing is, um, as I mentioned there, it's way more difficult to have kind of a friendly AI. Now one thing, or why is it difficult, is that if you have an agent that is more intelligent than you are, um, you need to make sure that you're not outsmarted by that agent. So there are kind of two broad categories of of measures you can take. So one thing is kind of just try to restrain the capability of that agent. So um, one thing is, for example, by boxing the agent, kind of um, locking it up or, yeah, with other methods like tripwires, et cetera. And the other category is you let the agent free, but you make sure that the goals it pursues are beneficial um, to humanity and all other sentient things. So, even if we manage um, this well initially, there's no guarantee that the nation this friendly initially after several, several, several recursive self-improvements um, is still beneficial in the end. So especially when you learn about the world, um, you might kind of um, have ontological updates, so your model might change and kind of what you want to um, pursue, what, you, what is your utility function, might look different in the new model of the world. So these are totally um, open and challenging problems. And now kind of the more practical advice to all of you, or for those of you who will pursue a political career. So what we can do as a society is we can prioritize risk-reducing activities and then progress over risk-increasing activities and when it comes to artificial intelligence research um, the message is that AI safety should outpace AI capability and which you can see from this graph isn't the case at all right now so it might be a good idea um, to change um, this um, inequality a little bit at least. And the other thing is there are many, many, many uncertainties um, as, as you've heard, regarding a timeline, regarding potential outcomes, um, etc. But what's sure is that we are the ones who will create um, such a super intelligent agent. So it's not primarily or not only a technical problem, it's also a so- societal one. So how can we ensure that we as humanity um, can cooperate? Because one of the most dangerous aspects of this whole topic um, are potential arms races among nations, and the danger of arms races is that parties sacrifice safety for speed. So it's more important to be the first one and to be safe. So what have we we've learned during um, this evening? So we're standing in front of a very crucial crossroad for the future um, of this planet and maybe even this universe. Um, so instead of just letting things happen, um, it might be a good idea to actively um, try to steer a course in that large space of uncertainty. And we have many, many open questions in philosophy, mathematics, and also when it comes to cooperation. So our track record as you mentioned in solving cooperation problem, is very bad so far. And this is also the reason many people aren't optimistic about solving co- cooperation problem. That's why I the only hope might be in outpacing general artificial intelligence with friendly artificial intelligence. So I want to conclude this talk with a quote from um, the book called Superintelligence, which was written uh, by this professor, Nick Bostrom, and was published last summer. So I'm going to read this. Before the prospect of an intelligence explosion, we humans are like children playing with a bomb. Such is the mismatch between the power of our plaything and the immaturity of our conduct. Superintelligence is a challenge for which we are not ready now and we will not be ready for a long time. We have little idea when the detonation will occur. So if we hold the device to our ear, we can hear a faint ticking sound. So this is the end of this talk. You find the slides and many, many more referen- um, references and charts and papers on superintelligence.ch. And if you have time, we also have time now for questions and answers. Thank you.